Hey guys, how you doing? Everybody hanging in there? Hey, uh, before we jump into our passage, thanks so much, Bishop, appreciate you. Um, we, Brian mentioned that we, we missed church like two weeks in a row and there's a whole bunch of stuff we wanted to talk about a couple weeks ago and I didn't get a chance to, in particular, invite you guys to come to our CHS downtown service Sunday nights at seven. You guys, it's so fun. We are having such a great time there. We love it. Is it not a great time, Steve and Linda? It's just so, such, a, such a blast and we'd love you to see it. Um, I would not assume that you'll come tonight because you're here um, and it's going to be the same sermon. It's going to be everything's the same. So, you know, you got, unless you just loved it and you want to come back again, that would be fine too. But sometime in the next four weeks, make a decision. Just join us at the evening instead of in the morning. So we meet. Uh, it's the, the address is 434 Church Ave Southwest, I think. It's right across the street from the Y. You can park at the Y, um, but we'd love you to see it. And then just think about who do you know that, you know, for that that might be a better, a better option for them. So come, it'd be like an open house of sorts over the next few weeks. Just come in, check it out, and then um, invite your friends. So um, if you have a Bible, you might want to get ready. We're going to be in Acts in, in a minute. Um, but I'm going to do a quick kind of review of where we've been, okay? So we're doing a series that we call Fully Committed, in which we are looking at the lives of a bunch of believers from the first century who were just all in. And by and large, their lives are all being drawn from the book of Acts. And I think it's a really interesting character study because the people we're looking at, they're all fully committed to Christ, but that commitment manifests itself in different ways. They're not, it's not all some cookie cutter thing. It all looks different. So we've looked at, um, who have we looked at? We looked at Peter. And I think the thing that's remarkable about Peter is that the dude is just all courage, right? He's like preaching the gospel. He gets arrested, gets beat up, gets threatened and warned to never do that again. And then he's right back in the same exact spot doing it again, right? And his courage is all the more impressive because if you know Peter's story, he hasn't always been courageous. There have been some moments of profound timidity for, in him, right? Um, there's Stephen, and Stephen is just, I, I think is an emblem of ridiculous graciousness. There was one time where Stephen was preaching the gospel. He's walking through kind of the history of the Jews and how it all is leading towards the revelation of the Messiah. Um, but his audience hates his message and they're just enraged and they, they tear after him and they stone him to death. I mean, they're literally picking up rocks and just chucking them at his head. And even as his head is being crushed by these stones, he cries out to God not to hold this sin against them, to show mercy on the very people that are killing him. I mean, like, who does that? It's so strange, right? Or there's Paul, right? We can look at Paul's life and, and Paul, Paul is a hard one to categorize. Because honestly, you guys, he just does everything well. He's just exceptional in every category. But if, if I had to pick something that is ex particularly exemplary about Paul, it would be hard. But I might say his endurance. Because Paul's pattern is he'll go into a city and he'll talk about Christ. And the crowd will get all stirred up. Some people will respond in faith. Others, though, will be really angry and they, they attack him. And he will, in the midst of this overwhelming opposition, he will reason with people. He will love the new believers in really costly ways. Uh, he has remarkable um, ability to kind of understand the theological implication of what's going on and, and make connections between what's happening right here to what God has said throughout the scriptures. Um, and he just persists. And then when he's kind of got things cleaned up there, then he goes on to the next city where he gets beat up again. And he does the whole thing all over again. And he just goes city to city to city in incredibly costly ways. And he just endures. And then when he's over here and there's these cities back here, then he writes these exceptionally thoughtful letters. He's just so on point to understand 
What were their scare points? What did they misunderstand? Where are their own mistakes screwing things up? And he writes these letters back to them to address their stuff, even while he's getting his head kicked in over here. So much so that these letters that he wrote have been read by billions of people, literally, over the centuries. And I would say, uh, for many people, certainly for myself, that with the exception of Jesus, Paul is the greatest hero of my life. And it certainly is the case that nobody has ever written anything that has so deeply impacted me as have Paul's letters, which he wrote under, generally speaking, under extreme duress. And he is, he's all in, in remarkable ways, right? Who else do we look at? Uh, Peter, Paul, oh, Barnabas. Okay, so Barnabas is not as well known as Paul, but Bar- you, if you knew Barnabas, if you got to meet Barnabas, you would love Barnabas because Barnabas would love you. Uh, Barnabas' mom did not name him Barnabas. Do you may know what his, it's a nickname, Anybody know what his real name is? Do you know what his mom, I think his name was? What is it? Do you know? Joseph. It's Joseph. But the apostles called him Barnabas, means son of, do you know what it is? Son of what? Son of encouragement. And it's because Barnabas, that's a dangerous question to ask, I just realized. Son of what? He, he, uh, he's, he's the guy that believes in you when nobody else believes in you, Right? They called him son of encouragement. And maybe one of, the, one of the greatest images of this is when Paul became a Christian, he became a Christian out of a context of profound antagonism. In fact, when Stephen was getting stoned to death, Paul was the guy running the show, okay? And then Paul hears the God believes, Jesus appears to him and he comes to Christ and Paul wants to join this community of believers and everybody's like, yeah, no deal. Like everybody's gonna, because what's your game? Like who are you gonna kill next? And everybody's wary of him. But Barnabas is the guy that steps forward and welcomes Paul into the community. He advocates for him. He defends him. He welcomes him in because that's just who he is. He is the son of encouragement and he shows his devotion to Christ by being devoted to people on the margins. Okay, what's the interesting postscript about that is that Paul probably liked Barnabas when Barnabas was doing that to him, but he got in a huge fight with Barnabas when Barnabas was continuing to be like that to somebody else. There was a guy named Mark, John Mark, and he had been on a trip with Paul and Barnabas and he flaked out and he left him in the lurch and Paul was like, never again. We're never bringing this guy along because he's undependable, he's unreliable. He, he bails on you and you need him most. But Barnabas, true to form, says, come on, man, let's give him another shot. I'm with him. I believe him. I I can see a a good future for him. And Paul's like, well, maybe you can, but I can't. They get in a huge fight. Paul and Barnabas, they split up. And Barnabas takes John Mark and goes on a missionary journey. And Paul picks in the next guy, Silas, who is after whom my son is named. And Paul and Silas go away. And Barnabas and John Mark go away because Paul just can't deal with Barnabas' ridiculous commitment to obvious losers like himself, right? You know how that story ends? Last thing that Paul writes is 2 Timothy. And in 2 Timothy, Paul writes, bring John Mark with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Barnabas was right. And Paul, my hero, was wrong. The son of encouragement. By the way, he also ends up writing the Gospel of Mark, which Barbara just read to us, same guy. Okay, that's Barnabas. Uh, who else do we do? We did uh, Lydia. Lydia is amazingly generous, right? Generous herself. It influences her church and her city. She's this businesswoman who just makes a huge impact on others. I can't remember. Anybody else that we've hit? Timothy. 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 Brian talked about Timothy last week. And Timothy, uh, what's, what's remarkable about Timothy is that his willingness to sacrifice, I think. I mean, 
Quite literally, the dude sacrifices his foreskin, which is weird, for the spirit of the gospel. But he is all in. And he considers other people's needs as more important than his own. Which is why Timothy says, I have no one like him. You guys, they're all different manifestations, but they're all driving from that same central commitment to Christ. And I want to look at somebody else with you this morning in just a minute. It's actually a married couple. But before we jump into our new content, one more thing um, just to point out that may, may not have been obvious to you as we've walked through this so far, but I really think is the key to understanding the book of Acts um, from which we've been drawing all these character sketches. Have you, have you ever noticed that the book of Acts is just jam-packed full of echoes? Everything, you guys, everything that happens in the book of Acts already happened. And the peculiar thing about the lives of these people that we're looking at is that in very particular ways, they are each mirroring or imitating Jesus's life. We could walk through, I could give you a list of like 30 or 40 like uncannily conspicuous similarities between things that happen in the book of Acts and things that Jesus already did. Stephen, we mentioned one of them, right? So Stephen is, as he's being executed, as he's being killed, in the very throes of death, he cries out speaking mercy for his killers. Does that ring a bell? You know anybody else who said, Father God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen's death is an imitation, a very conscious imitation of Jesus' death. And there's a number of markers throughout Stephen's life that are a direct line back to Jesus. You can look at Peter. Peter does all kinds of things that, are, that Luke has arranged in Acts as a conscious imitation of Jesus. One of them that I think is really kind of, a, you wouldn't, you'd never see it in English. But Jesus once healed a little girl. And the way you say little girl in Aramaic is Talitha. So he said to her, little girl, get up, Talitha kume. Peter heals somebody whose name is Tabitha. And so Jesus says Talitha kume, and Peter says Tabitha kume. And it is meant to be an echo to take you back to that Peter is doing what Jesus did. Or you look at Paul. Paul's life, Paul is just full of these things. Everything that Paul is doing is an imitation of Christ. But maybe one that I think is the most conspicuous is that uh, Peter, uh, that, that Paul is determined to go to Jerusalem. Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. In Luke 9:51, Jesus set his face like flint and he marches to the city. Peter, Paul, get it right. Paul is driven to go to Jerusalem. Everybody's saying, don't do it, don't do it. They're gonna kill you there. He's like, I'm going to Jerusalem. When he gets to Jerusalem, he gets arrested by the Jews. After being arrested by the Jews, he's put on trial before the Romans. And not just one trial, three trials. He's getting bounced around, three different trials before the Roman authorities. You know anybody else that, was arrested by the Jews in Jerusalem, had a trial before three different Roman authorities. The whole thing is framed to say that Paul is walking in the footsteps of Jesus. His life is an imitation of the, what the Christ had done. Everything we're looking at, all of these images of what it looks like to be fully committed, they're all imitations. They're all mirrors of what Jesus has done. Okay? So, here's our new, our new people. Instead of a person, it's a couple, a married couple. Who would you guys say is the most famous married couple in the New Testament. Don't say Mary and Joseph. Well, I know about them. Who else? Priscilla and Aquila. Cole, is that you? Who said that? Somebody said it. Priscilla, is that you, DFP? Priscilla and Aquila, okay. Where do you go to find out about Priscilla and Aquila? You know where their lives show up? In the Bible, that's exactly right. So good, yeah. In more particular, it's Acts chapter 18. So if you got your Bible, go to Acts 18. And we'll, we'll play it, we'll do this like a game, okay? 
I want you to try to extract from the text, what are these two famous for? How does their total commitment to Christ manifest? All right, so we're in Acts 18, starting in verse 1. And it says this. After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. So Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. And every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Okay, that doesn't give you a whole lot to go on. But any early clue what their gift is? They're new in the city, right? They know what it's like to be a stranger in a new place. And what do they do? John? Yes, well, well they do, you know, you're reading ahead. They take in a fellow, but first they're gonna take in a fellow named Paul, right? They welcome him in. They welcome the stranger in. And so Paul... He, Paul is, they're, they're new to the city. Paul's even newer. And they open their home to him. And he lives with them. He works with them. He, like, they basically give him a job to kind of make tents alongside them. And they are remarkably hospitable. There's no statement, by the way, that they're even believers at this point. They might be. We just don't know. The text doesn't say if they're believers or not. But they're going to become believers, which I think is probably common for anybody that has Paul living in their house. Look at what happens in verse 18. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time and he left the brothers and he sailed for Syria accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. So they go with them, with him. There's this new relationship that's formed. They're living with Paul and then something is happening here and they're all in. They're fully committed. And when Paul goes on the journey, they go with him. They give him the gift of their companionship. We don't know exactly. Maybe they continue to work to support the ministry so that he can go and, and speak of Christ to people. But whatever it is, they become his companions and they travel with him to a new place. And when they get to this new place, this hospitable couple who becomes Paul's companion, watch what happens. Verse 24 says, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. That means the Old Testament. And he had been instructed in the ways of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor and he taught about Jesus accurately though he only knew about the baptism of John. He's, got, he's right, but he's limited. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. So when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, what are they gonna do, you guys? They invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Pretty sure it seems obvious they're believers by now if they weren't already. But again, they're up to the same old tricks. Where do they invite Apollos? Into their house, right? They welcome him in. They teach him. They train him. And apparently they do a good job because he's crushing it. Down by verse 27, it says, When Apollos went to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. Basically, he's experienced hospitality here. Will you show him hospitality there? And on arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. He crushes it, right? He vigorously refutes his opponents and proves that Jesus is the Messiah. You guys, Priscilla and Aquila demonstrate their commitment to Christ through radical hospitality. They welcome Paul into their home. He lives with them. He works with them. He eats with them. They're having conversations in the evenings over the dinner table, I'm sure. 
And their home became his base for ministry when he was in Corinth. And then he travels and they travel. When he leaves, they join him. They don't lose this companionship when it's time for him to move on. And once they're settled in a new home, once again, they welcome in. They show hospitality to a minister of the gospel. They teach him. They train him. They send him out a more effective teacher, debater, because their home is a base for ministry. You guys, hospitality is a foundational skill for Christians from the very, very beginning. Something many of you know, Kelly and I, there she is, Kelly and I run Blue Ridge Fellows, and Blue Ridge Fellows, the whole thing is built on this foundation of hospitality. And Church of the Holy Spirit has stepped up in such radical ways. Rachel runs our, our host family program, and so she's always helping us find families willing to say, yeah, I've never met this kid. I don't know them at all, but they can come and they can live in my home and I'll feed them and care for them and provide a place of warmth and safety. These two, how many fellows have you hosted? Like 56 or something? Like there's constantly a fellow living with the Broadens where it's a home of love and welcome. We live and die on hospitality. And if they're not living in your house, you guys are constantly having fellows over for dinner. You're mentoring fellows. You're helping them find jobs. Hospitality is the root of the whole thing. And we want our fellows to graduate from the program. There's all these things that we're explicitly teaching them. But what we really hope they're gonna pick up is like, oh, I get it. My home will be a place of welcome and hospitality for the rest of my life because this is how the kingdom grows. And Priscilla and Aquila, they got it. They were all in. Did you know that hospitality from the very beginning was one of the necessary skills, the necessary attributes for anybody that would be a leader in the church? You can't be an elder. You can't be a presbyter. You can't be an overseer. You can't be a bishop unless you're hospitable. It's just part of the deal. How many days out of the year, Quig, is somebody that's not you or Annette living in your house? I mean, most of them, right? Because if you're going to be an overseer, if you're going to be a bishop, you, just, you have to be hospitable. It's part of the deal. Here's what it says. First Timothy and Titus both say basically the same thing. An overseer must be hospitable. Our homes are meant to be bases of ministry. I want to mention to you another couple um, who live in the same spirit of hospitality that Priscilla and Aquila did, although they are not contemporaries of them, but they're contemporaries of us. And their names are Ken and Floyd Smith. Has anybody heard of Ken and Floyd Smith? They became somewhat, um, you know, there's some notoriety attached to their name because of a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. Does anybody know Rosaria Butterfield? Rosaria is a brilliant woman. She's a college professor. Um, she was an activist in the LGBT community at her school. Uh, she's a lesbian, and was a lesbian in a relationship with another woman and not a Christian. And Ken and Floyd reached out to her and they um, began a, a, a dialogue over a written dialogue that was puzzling to her because they were so gracious and so kind even as they disagreed with her. Did you know that you can disagree with someone in a way that is loving and gracious and kind? Grace and truth are the hallmarks of Christians. And Ken and Floyd, they, they, they engaged her in this conversation that was welcoming and inviting. And then they, they literally invited her into their home. They invited her over for dinner. And here's her reflection on their invitation to dinner. This is what she says. The gay and lesbian community is also a community given to hospitality. I honed my hospitality gifts serving pasta to drag queens and queers, people like me. I prefer discussing matters of disagreement around a private table. Plus, I really wanted to see how these Christians lived. I'd never seen such a thing. So I took him up on it, and I was excited to meet real, 
born-again Christians and find out why they believed such silly ideas. My lesbian identity and culture and its values mattered a lot to me. I came to my culture and its values through life experience, but also through much research and deep thinking. I liked Ken and Floyd immediately because they seemed sensitive to that. And even though, obviously, these Christians and I were very different, they seemed to know that I wasn't just a blank slate, that I had values and opinions too, and they talked with me in a way that didn't make me feel erased. Ken and Floyd did something at the meal that has a long Christian history, but has been functionally lost in too many Christian homes. They invited the stranger in. That's so good. Not to scapegoat me, but to listen and to learn and to dialogue. Ken and Floyd have a vulnerable and transparent faith. We didn't debate worldview. We talked about our personal truth and about what made us tick. And then hear this. This is so great. Ken and Floyd didn't identify with me. They listened to me and identified with Christ. They were willing to walk the long journey to me in Christian compassion. Through Ken and Floyd's hospitality, Rosaria came to faith in Christ and her whole life was changed. In fact, you could read her story. It's a fantastic story. She wrote a book called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. It's fantastic. And if you particularly have the gift of hospitality yourself or you want to develop that, you want to grow in that, um, you want to be like Ken and Floyd or Priscilla and Aquila, you could also read Rosaria's second book, which is called The Gospel Comes with a House Key which is really a treatise on the value of hospitality. Now, some of you, I wonder, it's very likely that for some of you, that's a match. Like, hospitality is your gift as well. You might, do you? Do you have just kind of an intuitive sense of how to make people feel welcome and comfortable and wanted in your home? Is your home a base for ministry? We want, Church of the Holy Spirit, we want to be a people that are fully committed to Jesus because he is fully committed to us. And we know that that is going to look different across the church. It's supposed to look different. And I wonder for you, how does your devotion to Christ manifest? Is it in radical generosity like Lydia, that you're just, you're good at writing checks? Or maybe it's courageous speech like Peter. Man, you're just like, just bring it on. I'm not afraid of you. I know it's gonna hurt, but, but we'll take it because Jesus is worth it. Or maybe your life is marked more by you're inclined towards showing just ridiculous amounts of grace like Stephen does. Maybe you're more of a Barnabas. You're that encourager. You just believe in people and nobody else does and there's this list of people whose lives are touched by your kindness. They blossom when nobody else thinks they will. Or maybe, bless your heart, you're just like Paul. You're just good at everything, right? That would be lovely. Or maybe, come to think of it, you're not like any of them because you're not fully committed. I mean, you come when you come. Maybe you give a bit. There's really no evangelism to speak of in your life. And you can't think of anybody that's walking with Jesus because of your influence in their life. Guys, why would that be? I want to propose to you a, a, a theory, a reason. It might be because you've never really come to see that Jesus is fully committed to you. Perhaps your experience of Christianity is just, it's all obligation 
and ritual and box checking. And when do those things ever, 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 ever capture anybody's heart? But if Jesus' commitment to you were to sink in and you really came to believe that he actually placed you at the center of his life, that he loved you when you were undeserving, that he gave everything for you because he treasures you, that he courageously faced down a horrible execution for you, that he is determined to welcome you and show you radical hospitality, that he has gone to prepare a place for you so that where he is you also may be. If those things were to click and you saw the man of whom all of these characteristics are but partial imitations, if it stopped being empty words and you really found yourself believing that he is fully committed to you, then I think that you just might find yourself fully committed to him. You guys, we love him because he loved us first. And we are committed to him because he is committed to us. And if you find yourself not committed to him, can I encourage you to perhaps do the work to go back and to reflect and to see that he really does love you. I pray that that would click for you. Not that you start grinding something out. That doesn't work. That maybe works for a day and a half, but it will not persist. Ongoing, long-term commitment to Christ can only be fueled by a certainty that he is long-term, all the way committed to you, as indeed he is. And I pray that might be clear to you as these days go on. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the hero. Lord, all these other ones, man, there's some amazing people that have gone before us, and we're grateful for their, the way that their lives inspire us. But Lord, it is you. It is your love for me that fuels my life. And Lord, I pray that it would be deeper, that I would be more committed, more convinced of your love for me, that it would shape me. And for these ones here, any, anyone that's not even sure any of this is true, would you open their heart to see that it, it is, that you are everything we claim you to be, that you would captivate their hearts. We love you. Amen.